Hi, everybody. Welcome to the February edition of the Third Fridays podcast. We're live from the Kill Room. Uh, although there are some books in the background, uh, I guess that makes it less dextery and more cozy. Uh, if you're watching this on video, I have two guests today. It's a first, uh, and it makes it all the more uh, important to me because uh, our esteemed leader, Greg Lois, is manning the controls and is not a guest. Uh, he has not uh, passed muster to, to make it on. But uh, there, there will be some day. I, I promise one day we will get him on. Um, <laughs> sadly enough, actually, for, for all the people who contact me about the podcast, they never ask to see the video version. So I, maybe it's just uh, I have a face for radio. But maybe that's <laughs> what I'm bringing Amy and Jeremy on, on the show. Uh, welcome, guys. Hello, Hi. listeners out there. I am so stoked to be here today. Okay, I don't usually use stoked in the podcast, but there's a first for everything. Amy, what do you what do you do here at Lois? I am so honored to say that I am your paralegal. Mainly, I'm also Jeremy's paralegal. Mainly Jeremy's paralegal. Okay. And if you watch the after show, I will tell you who I like better of the two. The after show. Uh, am I going to be part of that? <laughs> Is that just some kind of no? Off that's cake? something that Greg does after you leave. Okay, that's weird and creepy, but okay. Um, <laughs> So uh, as everybody has been uh, listening to what we're doing uh, with the podcast now, we're, we're doing them in conjunction with the New York webinar series uh, to make it an obvious link, uh, whereas the webinar series talks about 101-level uh, issues for a certain topic, right? And this month's uh, topic is appeals. So I thought it was natural to have you guys both on to talk about uh, – what kind of developments have occurred in our world and what you know the three of us have spearheaded to make sure that we're representing our clients uh, with best efforts so uh, kind of all started you know I guess maybe a, a year ago when we you know we went to uh, the spring meeting of the self-insured association and uh, there were rumors about board panel decisions coming down without any kind of ruling on the merits, right? Jeremy, does that, does that ring a bell? It sounds about right. right? Uh, so what, what, what do those decisions essentially say, like that were starting to come down from the board? What, what, were, they, what so were they doing? The board has a rule 300.13 uh, that discusses how to fill out forms such as an RB89.1 RB and RB89.2 properly. Uh, it explains that uh, the application has to be filled out completely and fully and you have to give certain types of answers within each one of the questions, meaning that you have to disclose what documents you're using, what the issue of the appeal is, and what exception was noted at the hearing. Right. So, which is all not wrong. It's not, it's not anything different that had been happening before, right? I mean, we've been filing RB89s for years, so have other uh, firms on both sides, and both sides have been doing it the same way all this time. And at some point, the board decided to say that it wasn't good enough. Would that be fair to say? Sounds about right. Okay. Uh, so I imagine this is like, you know, um, you're, you're in a relationship with someone, right? And you've been taking the trash out as part of your delegation of duties every week or every two days or ho however the system is, right? Yes. 
And then your partner comes to you and says, well, you're not doing it at 6.31 p.m. on Tuesdays and 4.18 a.m. on Fridays because I wanted you to do it five minutes before it was picked up, right? Right. But it didn't reverse any of the times that you dutifully took out the trash for really how long you've been together. Right. Right? Yes. That is unfair. Yes. And one might say it's arbitrary and capricious. I think my paralegal (laughs) has done some homework. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, okay. We've been getting these decisions. Claimant side has been getting these decisions. What has been our action plan, Jeremy, to combat this? Um, we've found numerous clients that have willing, been willing to go along with uh, appealing these findings as we feel they're just randomly enforced at a certain point. Um, in doing research, we found that April 11th, for some reason, was a date they picked where they started to enforce this um, at some point. Yeah. More completely. Uh, you know, I, I kind of want to know like what, what happened during like the, the meeting on April 10th. Right. right. Like, you know, it's like they're preparing to change the world here right. and not even tell anybody. Uh, and, you know, what what really brought about this change? Right? right. And you could say anything, really. I mean, ultimately, I'm sure the board panel has been flooded with appeals from both sides. Right. Uh, I've always thought to prevent appeals from either side is to have judges make the correct decisions. Yes. Right. That's first and foremost. But. Uh, sometimes even a correct decision by a law judge will be appealed by the other side, and that goes both ways. So even that solution on my end doesn't actually fix the problem entirely. But we have a different problem here now. So like you said, clients have authorized us to be more aggressive by going to the full board and the third department. Yes. Right? Okay. Uh, In response to the first onslaught of appeals from both sides – what has been the board's response? Well, first of all, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, actually the Friday of Thanksgiving weekend, which is the one day everybody has off, the board decided to randomly issue a bulletin in which they provide guidance on how to fill, properly fill out the RB89 and RB89.2 uh, and 3 forms properly. You know, that's a, an interesting point that you bring up because the new 2018 SLU guidelines was also released on the same weekend. The year before, and it was like, okay, uh, who's as crazy as I am that's going <laughs> to read this during their tryptophan-induced coma? Uh, not many people, uh, but it's a good point, right? You know, just flooding the market at a time when no one's really paying attention yet. Uh, that certainly was a big deal when it came out. So, what can you go into a little bit what what this little memo or bulletin talked about? It pretty much uh, gave examples, provide right? guidance right. as to what was sufficient under the 300.13, what would be rejected immediately. So, mm-hmm. for instance, if you were appealing ANCR, it actually made it simpler on that end. You would just put ANCR. But um, it also changed some things like a pat in uh, where you disclose every – you now have to list every hearing where a issue was potentially addressed even tangentially. Right. You need to make sure you refer to every document in there or risk getting rejected. And further, you you need to note exactly what your exception was and what hearing it was made at. Right. So if we go back to taking out the trash, right, 
because used that example before, uh, it, it would be as if I was, or, or we, the collective we, were being punished for not taking the trash out the time specified by our partner. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then six months later, after they told us that we were taking out it out wrong, they were then saying, this is how you should take it out. Right? Right. Yes. So if I think about just normal common sense, right, that's backwards, right? Of course. Tell someone if, – if you want to go to the length of telling someone how to do it, you do it before you take the remedial action, right? Of course. And we like to think of administrative law as more – I don't want to say informal, but more um, – uh, more directed towards finding the right endpoint, right? Uh, without going through procedural red tape, right? That's really for that's really something that happens in civil court a lot, right? Make sure you do something uh, by th- with this sheet of paper and file it with the clerk at this location, right? Like it, administrative law doesn't usually have those kinds of requirements, so. I always looked at this little bulletin as kind of like a oopsies. Like, like should, if we were going to start doing this, should we have provided this kind of notice to everybody beforehand? Because throwing out appeals for not putting the date of a hearing in one box, but putting it, but when the date of the hearing is in a different box, right. seems a little bit out there. Right. Right? I think it's essentially the other part of it is that they had been allowing it for years and years. And it had been sufficient, and then one day they just decided it wasn't sufficient any longer. Right. So, you know, now, right, the bulletin comes out, and, you know, and Amy, how how much more time are you spending looking at each box on those RB89s that you're drafting? I am spending significantly more time. I am, if anything, just overdoing every box and just stating redundantly what the objections and exceptions were made at the hearing, even though the brief is stating the same, and even though the first two boxes on the cover sheet are stating the same. Right. It's almost it's, – it's, uh, it's overdoing it, right? right. Just for uh, the sake of uh, conserving resources that you would later have to spend because exactly. the continued abuse of discretion is going to come back, right, until the third department – looks at this and decides, you know, what is what is the real issue here, right? right. Um, so, okay, Bolton comes out. We're now tailoring our RB89 approach to something more, right, to, mm-hmm. to something more uh, intricate and making sure that those filings are not going to get bounced back, right? Right. Okay. Now, something else has also changed in the recent past with the appellate division, right? So, uh, Jeremy, can you talk a little bit about like deadlines and maybe some uh, changes to how and when we submit uh, filings to perfect our third department mm-hmm. appeals? So the appellate division recently changed its rules. This rule change went into effect in September of 2018. Right. Um, and part of the, just on the cover page of the new statute, they list that this will be enforced for all prior appeals as well. So anything that was pending before the court it would also be enforced. Um, it's it's an important it's important distinction, right? I mean, because uh, if you're going to apply something retroactively, uh, you'd have to give 
parties the opportunity to react. And I think that's where the third department has actually taken a little bit of a softer stance by saying, okay, uh, I'm changing the timeline by three months, but you can still file an extension request Mm -hmm. if you think you can't meet the new timeline, right? Which seems to be a little bit more uh, in the line of common sense. Uh, but that's really to kind of tell our audience, you know, you have third de- department appeals pending. You probably have more based on these board panel decisions that are uh, arbitrarily denying appeals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that you have them, it's time to file those extension requests. And, you know, the whisper is if you're not doing it, send it over here. We'll do it for you. Right. <laughs> we'll file those extension requests and get it back. Uh, get back the relief that you need uh, before the board. Right. So the biggest change is now, instead of taking nine months to perfect an appeal, you now only have six months. Right. And with the six-month timeline, you're filing everything with the rec, like the record and the brief is filed at the same time yeah. now too, right? So the initial part of it, the filing of the notice of appeal, the proposed records list, all remains the same. So that's within the first 45, 45 days and then a, a 30 days later. So within the first 75 days, everything remains exactly the same. But thereafter, things have now changed. Right. Okay, so game planning now as a team to kind of focus our firm on putting forth the best foot forward, right? Um, we've been talking to clerks. We've been talking to, uh, you know, uh, binding and printing companies to kind of get everybody's take on it and make the best decision. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of things have you guys learned from talking to these types of people? Sure. Well, I called the third department the other day. They were very helpful. Not in preparation for this podcast at all, right? No, actually. Okay. (laughs) They were very helpful, and they informed us that the extension requests no longer have to be formal motions. They can just be a simple letter, and that they will be, excuse me, routinely granted. Okay. And an answer will be provided via regular mail within a week. That's, they mean, said, yeah, they said that they were a little backed up recently, but that normally that's how it will be handled, with the exception of those appeals who have already passed the six months. If you've already passed the six months, it won't be granted, and you'll have to automatically file a motion to vacate a dismissal. Okay. So here we now have administrative law and kind of appellate law juxtaposed but really doing what the other is really intended to do right administrative law like i said uh is not supposed to be filled with you know red tape and procedural nonsense right we get to the end point Mm -hmm. in the most efficient way right whereas uh appellate uh appellate practice has a lot of requirements that attorneys practicing before them have to commit to Mm -hmm. right service uh, you know, timelines that are way more intricate and uh, time-specific, right? The Bell Division's now saying, yeah, go file an extension request. We've changed these rules. Right. Board panel is saying, we've changed these rules. We're just not going to tell you until after the fact, but still deny the appeals that are pending, right? So even when the first decision came out on April 11th, right, there were appeals pending and filed before that that didn't get a chance to really file the, I guess, the administrative equivalent of an extension request, right? right? So it's a little bit of an odd change for both 
uh, areas. And I think we have to make sure that we know uh, what our clients' interests are all, at all times and also be prepared to present uh, opportunities and options going forward. Does that make sense? Definitely. Yes. Okay, cool. So uh, I'm glad that you're just nodding along. It's great knowing that I have like carte blanche to just say whatever I want, right? Great. <laughs> uh, As per usual. Okay. All right. <laughs> Everybody can please disregard that. <laughs> but uh, so in the in the in the uh, in this on the subject of appeals, right? Uh, you know, obviously, if we're doing a podcast on appeals, felt like it would have been worth it to look at recent appellate division decisions, and I came across this case that talked about schedule loss of use. Right, schedule loss of use has been one. Uh, one of our clients' biggest problems, right? Uh, you bump into a door, hurt your shoulder, you don't lose any time from work, and because you have some subjective range of motion, you get an award at the end of the day, right? That's problematic because the system's designed to compensate for permanent injuries, right? But right. if you haven't lost time from work, it doesn't really make sense that you should get an award, right? It also occurs, or this situation occurs, when sometimes you have an arm injury that has a shoulder injury and an elbow injury separately, but there's only a schedule loss of use opinion for the arm, right? Oftentimes, doctors will find a percentage loss of use of the elbow and a percentage loss of use of the shoulder. So, Jeremy, like, what, what is the, I guess, what's the uh, threat or, or the, the, the potential problem with finding two separate percentages? What so, could possibly happen? So the usual practice is that the law judge will just add the two together. Right. Let's say you have a 25 and a 30, one for the elbow, one for the shoulder. That's above um, 50%, so that's a 55%. You have the possibility then of 15-3V, which means the claimant, in addition to the schedule, the claimant might at some point be entitled to a large waste, loss of wage earning capacity. And that's very problematic, right? Uh, so I wanted to talk about this decision. Uh, it just came out yesterday. Uh, it's called Matter of Bell versus Glen Falls Ready Mix. And the law judge did exactly that. It was like 50% of the shoulder and 30% of the elbow, right? Wow. For an 80% loss of use. I want you to think about losing 80% of your the use of your arm. Like, think about how bad that would have to be. Like, you, you know, that's close to the complete loss of use of your arm. You might as well chop sure. my arm off. Right. right. If I can't use 80% of it, you might as well chop it off. But in comp, I guess you can get findings where really it's not really 80%, right? So the board panel rejected this finding by the judge and said, no, look at the major uh, de deficit, and then if any special considerations apply, that can be added. But it's not a, just an A plus B equals C. Right. It's really, is A greater than B? Use A, and then if there's anything else to go after it, go to C. So the claimant appeals, of course. Why not, right? Uh, right. Instead of 60%, I want 80%, even though you know I have probably 25% loss of use of my arm. I'm just not telling anybody, right? <laughs> so the third of it, third department comes back and they say that the schedule is focused on the highest valued part of the extremity. In case of a high schedule for one part of the extremity, calculate first for the major loss in part involved. If there are additional defects, for example, of the elbow, add 10% to the loss of use of the major part, and the final schedule will be that calculation right that's that actually makes more sense 
And this decision, it's not, it's not groundbreaking, but I think the recency of it and the problems that schedule loss of use is facing with the new guidelines and, and people who haven't lost time from work, I think it's important to really bring up and remind our clients, employers, and maybe, I guess, remind people who aren't our clients, wink, wink, right, that <laughs> these are things that we can do to lower exposure, right? You lower the exposure of a 50 plus 30. It's not 80. It might be 60, right? And that right. becomes your worst-case scenario, right? It means that your compromise scenario is lower, and it means that you have more information to go to litigation with, right? Is that fair? Absolutely. Definitely. Right. And we're all, like you said, like you, if you want to make a deal, right, you, you want to actually come with an informed basis, right? It's not just, oh, I have 50 and 30, that's an 80, you have a zero, so let's give you 40. Like a 40% loss of use is still almost half loss of use of your arm. Right. Right? So like who wants – who? What employer carrier wants to submit to that compromise when the person hasn't lost time from work? Absolutely. Okay. So we have a recent decision, and we're now we've talked about what we're doing appeal-wise, right? We've talked about how the board panel has decided some cases and what we're doing. And then you guys have actually talked with people uh, from the third department, and I mm -hmm. kind of appreciate that because now it adds us to – really come full circle, right? And the full circle is, one, we're spending more time on the RB89s to make sure that this doesn't happen, right? Yeah. Right. And for the cases that it's happening, right, we're digging our heels in the sand. Absolutely. And we're saying that it's an abuse of discretion, right? Yes. Right? So when these decisions come out, right, you may see these two people again, uh, and we'll see how the, how the, the court rules on it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to it. Okay. So uh, thank you to Jeremy Janice. My name is Christian Cison and, and Amy Figueroa. What do we remind everybody to do? Defend from day one. Oh, I've taught you well. This is so <laughs> great. All right. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody.